I'm Zivy Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for updates on podcast guests and lots of live events. Hi, everybody. I hope you're having a great week. This week, I am pleased to announce that my sponsor is going to be somebody I've picked. I'm not accepting money from sponsors anymore. I'm just trying to help out small businesses um, while we all go through this period of time. And I've collaborated with Page One Books, pageonebooks.com, and the one is not O-N-E, it's page number one, pageonebooks.com, and also Hampton's Hand Poured, which is a small candle-making business. And the three of us have teamed up to create a book box bundle containing three books that are particularly relevant slash funny slash entertaining for this period of time, one by John Kenny, one by Carla Nomberg, and one by Jen Gotch. And also a candle that has a label that says, next chapter, please, because... I don't know about you. I'm definitely ready for the next chapter of life. So please go on page1books.com. 15% of the proceeds, which is my entire portion, I'm donating to COVID-19 recovery efforts. So buy yourself a box. Send a box to someone who you know needs a pick-me-up. It'll be really helpful. They'll read the three books, light a candle, and feel immediately better. Now's the time. And it helps support these two small businesses, Page One Books and Hampton's Hand Poured. And you'll make a difference on so many levels. So please check it out. It's on my website, and it's also on pageonebooks.com. Thanks so much. Also, just wanted to remind you that this week, like every week, I have five new essays up in We Found Time, my new online magazine. We Found Time's five essays this week are written by Christina Geist, Tiffany Schlain, Wendy Walker, Beth Riccanati, and Mara Laura Philpot, who have all been on my podcast already. So you might have listened to their episodes, or you should go back and listen to them again. And they've written fantastic essays on everything from taking one day off a week for technology to not prioritizing finding a new man when you have a teenage boy at home, all sorts of great stuff. So please check out wefoundtime.com any day this week for our five new essays. Fanny Singer is the author of Always Home, A Daughter's Recipes and Stories, with a foreword by Alice Waters, her mother. She is the co-founder of the design brand Permanent Collection, quote, timeless objects and garments for a modern lifestyle, unquote. Fanny received a PhD on British pop art from the University of Cambridge. In 2015, she and her mother, Alice Waters, published My Pantry, which she also illustrated. After more than a decade in the UK, Fanny recently moved back to California. She currently lives in San Francisco. Welcome, Fanny. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you so much for having me, Zibi. Your book has been like the talisman for me. I've been toting it everywhere because it's so perfect for right now called Always Home, which is so fitting. (laughs) Tell everybody about your book um, and congratulations on having it out there in the world. Thank you. And thank you so much for your advocacy. It's been an amazing thing to have people speaking about this book in the way that you have and with so many other authors, because it is a very strange time to be bringing out a book and not be able to go out on the road and talk about the book and shake hands and sign books and do all those things that I've been looking forward to for, you know, pretty much since the beginning of the writing process, which was I guess about three years ago, it was coming off of doing this little book with my mom that was more of a cookbook that I co-wrote and illustrated called My Pantry. My mom is Alice Waters. Um, she's a chef. Might have heard of her. Um, and this book was a way to, I think, look at that relationship. I was still living in England where I'd been for actually about 11 years until about two and a half years ago. And it was a way to kind of I don't know, think mull over that relationship, think about what gave it so much substance. My mom and I are very, very close, as anyone who reads this book will immediately surmise. 
some I'm, I'm sure would say dangerously close, but I, you know, I've never felt, it's never felt that way. It's always felt like a healthy, but very loving relationship. So it kind of fuses a lot of different things. I mean, I, I'm a writer foremost, but I really love to cook. And I, I came up, you know, in a family in which that was just an assumed pedigree. So it fuses recipes with stories about food. It's definitely not an autobiography. And I always hasten to say that because I think when you're 36, it's a little bit of an odd thing to begin writing the story of your life in a more linear, factual way. And this felt like a fun way and also very focused way to talk about a relationship and also a very specific you know, perspective on my life. For anybody who might not be as in touch with the food world as you, and of course your mom, could you explain why is Alice Waters a famous chef? Like, why do you assume everybody knows who she is? I know, of course, because I like love the food world and whatever. But just just give a quick background of of what makes your family so unique, if you don't mind. No, of course. I mean, I always, I, it's true, especially with an American audience, I sort of assume a certain amount of familiarity, but it's also because I'm normally introduced as, you know, Fanny Singer, comma, Alice Waters' daughter. But my mom is, is a cook who's had a restaurant for close to 50 years now called Chez Panisse, which is in Berkeley in California. And even though it was started, I think, you know, the idea was a very humble place where friends could gather. And it was in the middle of the free speech movement and and still in the middle of the Vietnam War. And so the idea was to create a place, a very convivial place with very good food that was kind of in the hippie revolutionary spirit, but the food was very much not hippie food. You know, it was the the kind of food that my mom had eaten and experienced when she was in in her 20s and had gone to France in the 60s. And so she was trying desperately to bring this aesthetic and and also palette back to California. Um, And so Chez Panisse was founded in 1971. And yeah, it's, it, very instantly sort of established itself as the place to be. And, and because the, the pedagogy around sourcing and what's now called farm to table was like something that hadn't existed before. At least it hadn't really existed in industrialized America. You know, I mean, of course, pioneers were doing a very, very farm to table style eating in America, but this is, this was something that had been lost, you know, post-war. And so, yeah, Japanese, I guess as a kind of pioneer farm to table and my mom has become a really vocal advocate also for feeding children sustainable lunches in schools. And she has a wonderful project called the Edible Schoolyard, which is now 25 years old and has thousands of affiliate schools around the world. So she's, she's kind of a, started out as actually a Montessori teacher and then became a restauranteur and is now kind of this restauranteur activist and mom. (laughs) And then you took all of the things that were going on at home and in the restaurant and just applied them to normal life and then didn't even realize they weren't so typical until you were the only one, say, digging your hands into like a huge vat of food or like having these, (laughs) you know, cloth lunchboxes that other kids weren't having. And of course, now everybody's doing all of the stuff you were doing back then, but... I, what I think is really wonderful, though, about people adopting it now is like it is the quality of the experience of those things being more sort of sensuously acquainted with your food and also and cooking more, which I think everyone's doing now and sort of realizing how much pleasure there is in it and how I'm sure also it's feeling like, you know, a lot for people who are not used to cooking maybe three meals a day and especially for families. I mean, my friends and I are like, how 
are we making so many dishes? Like, how is this possible? This is just an inhuman number of dishes. Like, and I do feel like we're dishwashing constantly, but it's, you know, getting back into the kitchen and really, you know, using your senses too, I think gives you this reprieve from, especially like in this moment, all the anxiety and all the other preoccupations around work or, homeschooling, I can imagine and all those things. So I'm, I'm happy that this book comes at it. A lot of people have been telling me that it feels like a very sense activated kind of text and that there's a lot of sensory material and it's easy to go into this other place, like not just travel to some of the destinations that are spoken about in the book, like, you know, the, the South of France where we used to go when I was a kid, but also just traveling through the sense descriptions around food or around smells and flowers or nature or whatever, which is one of the nicest things I've heard about the book. So it's true. It it is immersive in that way from every sense, even how you have a whole chapter on color and like like your mom's favorite color. And, you know, I don't know, it's great. It's very visual, but also, you know, a, a lot about the relationship between a mother and a daughter, which is really important. And so you you said briefly earlier that usually you're referred to as Fanny Singer, comma, Alice Waters' daughter. And you said it so in such a glib, sort of happy way. How do you feel about that? Like, how do you feel about that becoming a part of your identity? I know people who have prominent parents have all different feelings about that. And you've like leaned into this whole piece of yourself. Well, you can either be disgruntled about it or you can lean into it. You can't change it. It's always going to be there. So it's not even like this new part of my identity. It's been part of my identity for my entire life, you know? And I think, you know, I I was very conscious of making sure that I went out into the world and studied what I wanted to study and pursued the things I was interested in and didn't feel, and actually to my mother's credit, given how sort of single-minded she is, she applied no pressure to me whatsoever around, you know, taking on over the restaurant or taking it on or, or continuing her work at all, you know? And so I didn't feel, I felt neither her pressure, nor did I feel there was no imperative to go and refine my skills in that. It was like, I could go out and do what I really wanted to do. And, you know, I mean, not that I knew exactly. So I spent a lot of time figuring it out. You know, when I ended up going to England to study art history and I did a PhD in art history and I lived in England for a long time. And I think the living in England for a long time was a part of being able to come back to California and then feel like I had created enough of a sense of self and also both, both spiritually and professionally, you know, and like at that point, by the time I came back, I had a career as a writer, as a writer around cultural stories or art criticism. And I didn't feel as sort of wobbly, I guess. And my mom is, you know, I talk a lot about what a gravitational force field she is. Like people who are around her, a lot of them end up working with her or sort of conforming to some idea that she has for them because it's a very seductive notion or (laughs) proposal or whatever. And she's, it's part of the beautiful thing about this community here is she has so many collaborators. And I was always happy to be one, but I also felt like I needed to be very certain of what I was doing on my own. And it's okay that I, I mean, I feel totally fine that she doesn't have access to certain aspects of what I do and that I don't need her approval for that. And, but it took, you know, it took a long time. I mean, I'm 36, like, you know, it's not like I figured it out in two years and, you know, it took me a long time. I lived in, I had to suffer in the English weather for (laughs) over a decade to be able to come back to the clement little town of Berkeley or to the Bay Area. (laughs) <laughs> you and your mom have such a special relationship and you could just, in every part of this book, you could just sense it and feel it and the respect that you have for her and show her. 
not everybody, famous or not, right? The mother-daughter relationship can be so fraught and so complicated. Do you have any idea why yours is not? <laughs> or or am I wrong? Maybe there's things that you just don't write about as openly. And, you know, I'm not saying you're conflict-free, but what do you think it is? Is it that base level of respect? Is it, what do you, what do you think? It's a good question. You know, I, I have, I mean, I definitely have an unusual relationship with my mom. I don't have any friends who have this sort of level of proximity with their parents. And, and even like, you know, I'm, I love my dad. I'm so close to my dad and we just don't have the same type of relationship at all. But I think it's, you know, I, and it's not to say like, I didn't go through kind of quasi rebellious phase as a teenager. My parents were divorced when I was 13. So it was a bad time for that. And I, you know, it was confusing and upsetting and, you know, it's not an, a perfect angel, but I also, I think, I really think that it was not respect so much as love. It was a sense of being very unconditionally loved. And she found good ways of telegraphing that to me without having to tell me. So when I was a teenager and you sort of have wax in your ears, like you just can't listen to or hear anything your parents say. It's just all anathema, you know, it's like, we'll just fight it all. I just, you know, she found a way to tell me whether it was in a sort of non- language form like cooking, you know, which I feel like cooking something for making special food, delicious things for people is a way of telegraphing love, making these little bouquets that she would put into my lunchbox, making me lunch every single day through high school, you know, and I, and something delicious that I wanted to eat. So I never really, you know, I didn't, I I was, I was a bit of the odd kid who had this lunchbox, but it was still something that other people also wanted to taste and eat from. So I was never really stigmatized, but that level of care. And then also finding other adults that I really, that I'd grown up with and trusted who could also support me. And sometimes I think she'd filter messages through them or, or figure out what was going on with me through them. So that was what saw us through that hardest period. But, but now I think it's just, you know, it's that, that foundational sense of, unconditional love. I mean, it sounds sort of cliche and yet I think there's just nothing that is more sustaining over a long period of time than feeling like your parent just loves you no matter what, you know? It's so nice. All right. I'll try to make sure my kids know that. (laughs) (laughs) This might be too personal a question and we can skip it if you'd prefer not to answer, but I'm just wondering if you grow up in a restaurant culture a mom who's so devoted to food, you're obviously so passionate about food. Did you ever have like any eating issues or body image, anything? Or did you just have like a really healthy relationship with food and body because of like the wholesomeness of the food that you were eating? Yeah, well, I know I never, I really never had any issues around. I I mean, like I had the normal sort of like, oh, I feel so fat or like, you know, the kind of normal grievances about one's own body image, but I, I played soccer avidly all through high school and then into college a bit. And then also at Cambridge. So I had, there was a period where I was playing, like, I want to say 20 hours of soccer a week or something. So I was not, I, there was never a period in which I was particularly static, you know? So I was always a very active kid. And then my mom is in terms of what we ate at home. I mean, it was, portions were small. We're actually so small sometimes when I was playing that much soccer that I would have to eat some cereal like after. (laughs) But, you know, I was like, I never, it didn't even occur to me that there was a caloric correspondence between like, you know, you'd eat food and then those calories somehow corresponded to 
weight gain. I mean, there was my mom never, the word calorie didn't enter my lexicon really until college, you know, like it just didn't. And I don't think I had much of a sense of the correspondence between like what you ate and whether you would gain weight at all. I mean, in what, for one, I was working out so much when I was, you know, we got to, I got to Yale and I was like, okay, I now have my own granted limited bank account and can eat carrot cake whenever I want, you know, and like throw you. And I was like, Oh, that's, Oh, I see. This is why my jeans like maybe don't fit. But no, growing up, it was an unbelievably wholesome relationship to between body image and, and food and, and its consumption. We never ate in excess. We never had unhealthy food. Shapenese is a much more Mediterranean approach to cooking. There's just not that much butter in things. It's always very olive oil driven. You know, dessert was limited to fruit mainly. And then sometimes at Shapenese, you'd have share a galette, a piece of galette. So there wasn't really even the possibility, I think, of getting to a sort of dangerous overindulgence with food. But yeah, no, I mean, I, I think being involved in cooking and cooking healthy food, but delicious food, not worrying too much about what you're making, you know, calorie wise and just being just eating mostly vegetables, which is what we did anyway, was a way to have a pretty a well-adjusted relationship to, to eating. I mean, I got to, when I did get to college, eating disorders were rampant, you know, in my, in the dorm rooms that were all girls, you know, it's just kind of crazy. But, you know, I also understood it more in relationship to that terrible food that we were eating. It's like, you didn't really want to have that in your body, you know, but still, I was like, that was a hard gear shift there. I like almost immediately figured out how I could like date an older guy who had a kitchen off camp, like an apartment off campus so I could cook in his kitchen. I actually, I went to Yale also, but when I got there, I actually, for the first time, lost weight because all I ate was cereal. (laughs) I ate like tiny little salads and cereal and I didn't like any of the food that they made in like the hot dinner line. And I was like, I mean, when I moved off campus, finally I could buy some regular food. But the first year I was like, huh, okay. (laughs) It was really grim. It was pretty grim. (laughs) But, But I did discover, and I mentioned this in the book, I did discover frozen yogurt. And that was like, that was dangerous. And it was like yogurt is a misnomer, like that weird frozen stuff. And I was like, I thought I ate so much of that my freshman year. Too. We like lived at Durfee's. I have like all my pictures were at that frozen yogurt place. It was amazing. Yeah. That was like my sustenance. I think that time of life too, like everybody was eating frozen, frozen yogurt. It was like the thing. Now, I don't know. Anyway. Yes. <laughs> but I listened to you talk about your relationship to food as so normal and it seems so obvious. And yet so many people struggle with not only themselves, but how to teach their children to eat in just the manner you were talking about, which is essentially not really thinking about it that much, right? You're focusing on the good ingredients and the food and the rituals, but not the fat inducing part of it, which is so key. Anyway, I don't know. I mean, my mom was really not freaked out by, by fat, you know, she, and it was before we had this, we embraced well, actually, she had a funny little paradoxical like contradiction in how she would provision <laughs> because on the one hand, she was feeding me nonfat milk and nonfat yogurt, which was this weird holdover from or like backlash from, I think, a kind of 50s high calorie, like high cholesterol diet. And she thought like nonfat milk was the healthy thing, which is which meant that for years I was like milk 
is disgusting. It's <laughs> just the worst substance. I remember protesting once, like, you know, my doc, my pediatrician told my mom that I needed to have more calcium. And I was like, I, I had this little protest in the morning. It was like, I insisted on eating my dry cereal flakes with like a handful of Tums because I didn't want the milk on my cereal. <laughs> I like subsequently discovered whole milk and it's, you know, it was amazing. And that happened a long time ago, but in my childhood, it was, it was non-fat milk. However, when we were sitting down to the table, you know, she would happily eat a rind of, you know, fat off of steak or there wasn't like, she wasn't trying aggressively to stay like, you know, to not eat carbs or not eat fat. And she just had a very, you know, measured, she never ate a huge amount. She just was really measured in that, but not in this calculated sort of anxious way, you know, and I think that the energy, her energy and love around food meant that I had just a very unvexed relationship to it myself. That's awesome. I feel very lucky. Do you miss being a part of a team, like playing soccer for that much time? Not, no, not really, not in that sense. I mean, my body is definitely like too broken from that to like indulge, even consider indulging in even the most modest pickup game, I think. (laughs) My knees are not not having it. But I also, you know, I've always been a very, very social person and I kind of, my new soccer team is my dinner table. You know, it's like I get to have all these wonderful people over. And it's the thing I'm missing most right now is I usually cook for people a couple times a week. And sometimes, especially, I mean, I don't live in Berkeley, I live in San Francisco and our apartment's not that big, but we'll still come over to my mom's and make like massive 35 person dinner parties in the back garden and just run tables. The house is sort of, you would never know it, but down in the basement, there's like enough tables and tablecloths and chairs for, you know, 40 people because there are occasionally sort of catering things that happen here, big dinner parties that require all those things. So I'm missing having, you know, especially with a garden in in full bloom with spring. So I feel sort of forlorn, but I, you know, it's, that's how I've gathered people in my adult life is around the table, which of course, like absolutely part of my childhood and how my mom thought of, I think, raising me was just having other people around too, you know. Maybe you could do a series of dinners in the garden and call it like dinners in the garden or something and then invite like 40 people over zoom and then and then like record it or something I mean that would be so neat to see like get a whole bunch of interesting people and like have your parties and just like put put them all around and cook I I don't know I mean I just miss humans no I know I know I know that was a poor substitute I miss humans too I really we have been doing really sweet like more intimate zoom dinners with friends where we've like I've had a friend like what do you have in your fridge and we're both like both got cabbage and I'm like I've got some salmon in the freezer and like we've made sure we've had more or less the same ingredients and then we've cooked the meal together in the kitchen that's so nice on FaceTime and then like sat down and propped the computer and like our partners join and we sit down and have my friend friend Satya, who's an actor, did, we did a hilarious thing where we had, it was like, let me hand you, I think we had the same type of water glass and, or plate or something. So he was like, here, here's some water. And then he'd like pull, he'd pull it away. The other side, we were doing this sort of illusionistic sharing through, it was, it was, it was good fun. And it was, it did, it was like a little band aid for the, oh. the longing, but 
I mean, I, again, though, I mean, I just feel so lucky to be where I am. I don't, I can't, I mean, as much as I miss my friends, it's like, I know it's temporary and I feel lucky to have the community, even if it's disembodied at the moment. And yeah. And how do you feel? So you worked for a long time on the book, right? Tell me about the process of writing the book and like, where, like, did you write it in your apartment? Where and when did you write it? How long did it take? The whole like backstory of, of your writing it. So I started, yeah, I started it about, I guess about three years ago, maybe a little bit longer. And it was very sort of in bits and pieces because I had, I was still kind of multiple jobs, really. I think of myself sort of having three jobs. One of them is running a design brand called Permanent Collection, which has a very small team. It's it's pretty much just me and my co-founder and then one woman who is our director of operations part-time. So we're like a, a really small little company, which means there's tons of work there. And then the other strand is sort of art criticism and freelance journalism around arts and culture until recently on the masthead at WSJ Magazine. And then this other strand was like, now I have a book deal that I need to do, you know, I need to create a book. So it was always a little bit of a juggle to find the time. It wasn't like sitting down weeks on end, just working in a single-minded way. But I'm kind of, my brain kind of works like that, where I'm actually pretty easily able to shift these gears between the things. So if I had an hour or a day that I could really consecrate to the book, like I could get into that mindset pretty, pretty quickly, thankfully which maybe was just an adaptation to the necessity of having to do that. But by far the best periods were when I was able to have like a few weeks at a time. And I did go up to Olinas, which is one of the places that's written about in the book, just a little beach town just north of here where I grew up going when I was a kid. My godmother has a house there and actually had almost a month where it was just like turned off all my other requirements, like did nothing but just sit and work on the book. And I really don't have much of a sweet tooth, but one of the things like sort of sneaky things that I discovered about when I'm really writing in a focused way and moving my body very little is like, all I want is to eat sugar. It's like a unbelievable, unquenchable, like I don't even really think about sugar otherwise. And I was like, I'd wake up and be to my boyfriend and I was like, can you make pancakes for breakfast? And then like two hours later, I'm like, well, can we have brownies for lunch? <laughs> <laughs> Cake for dinner? It's like, it must be something about the way the brain burns energy where it just wants like very available glucose or something. Like this is my theory. Since of course it's like completely not scientifically substantiated, but because I, I just don't ever want to eat that way otherwise. And then as soon as I stopped the project, because it was similar during my PhD too, the last like home stretch is like I ate un fathomable quantities of chocolate just and then the second I submitted the thing like no more desire just to like dropped off a cliff you know it was like a very specific thing I think anyways lots of brownies were consumed in the making of always home which is which is not intuitive when you read the content <laughs> I speak very little about baking and also generally not being very good at baking and the fact that sugar was something I was like largely deprived of when I was a kid But yes, and then I also worked, my friend has an amazing commune up in Mendocino in Albion, which is kind of, I mean, it was a commune from the seventies, all these little hippie cabins spread out through the woods. And he's been, it was sort of quasi derelict and he's, he bought it and has been rehabilitating it. And he's an artist and architect. His name's Fritz Haig. 
from LA who moved up to Mendocino with it to undertake this project. And the cabins are so beautiful and they're very isolated. And the one that I was in had no internet, which is highly recommended for writing. <laughs> and I just, I spent a couple of weeks there too working. And it was those focused periods of writing, even though I managed to do it throughout that really felt like I was able to see the whole of the book because it is a vignette structure where they're sort of somewhat chronologically or organized, but not, not explicitly. And some are definitely not even really rooted in one moment in time. They're more impressionistic. So spending time, more time with the book, being able to sort of spread everything out and actually see what you what territory you'd covered was invaluable. And so those more like protected periods of time were great. Has this inspired you to write more books or are you like, that's it, I've had enough? No, not at all. I don't know what the next book is about yet, but (laughs) I would love to, I mean, for me, I really, I take a lot of pleasure in writing about art, especially in like it's, I mean, the most possibly unremunerated work on the planet is to write art reviews, <laughs> but it's still something I really like to do and write in a very succinct format. But I discovered that, and maybe this is just like, you know, doing a PhD in England where I think there's a certain appreciation of a more like distended, loquacious way of writing or thinking through subjects. And it's, you know, at its best, it's like, it's so lexically dense, but it's also really good. You know, it's like not hopefully too hypertrophied, but this is, this was like a way of like letting myself kind of ramble and then, I mean, tighten it up, but like being in that, like, I just, I don't know if you know the books by Gerald Durrell about the book called My Family and Other Animals. Mm-hmm. He was Lawrence Durrell's brother and he was a, he ended up being a zoologist and, but he was a fabulous writer. And I, that book is the one that I had most in my mind when I was like writing this kind of just like rambling story of childhood, all these eccentric characters, like, you know, being curious about nature and really plugged into, to the natural world. Anyway, sorry, this is a run on set. This is the most <laughs> fun answer. Hey, this is form and content, just mirroring back. I love to it. What, you know <laughs> No, it's great. Do you have any advice to aspiring authors having completed this project and now, you know, ushering it out into the world? That's a good question. But I, yeah, I I think write, write the book that you need to write, you know, because for me, this is the book that I needed to write. And it was the obvious subject for right now. I knew, you know, there's some things I'm interested in and there are other things that other people would, I think, like me to write about. And then there are the things that, there are the things that are really inauthentic need. Because you can't, I think with all, I mean, I hesitate to call this art, but I think with all art, for artists to make good art, you have to be led by some kind of compulsion. You know, there has to be a feeling of necessity. Like if you don't write that thing or you don't make that thing or paint that thing, and maybe you don't even know what it is, but it's just like going and doing it and honoring the process but it's like, it's, it's the feeling of being driven that makes, I think, usually something good come out of it or hopefully, you know, and even if not, it feels rewarding. It feels gratifying to make it. So yeah, just keep at it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books and look forward to having you in our book club. And thank you for your fantastic stories. <laughs> thank you, Zibi. It's such a pleasure to talk to you this morning. Thanks, you too. I'll see you soon. Okay, I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. You've been listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books with Zibby Owens. Please make sure to sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com to get more updates about episodes like these and also lots of live events. 
Again, today's episode has been sponsored by my collaboration with Page One Books and Hamptons Hand Poured. Please check out the book box bundle retailing on pageonebooks.com, also available on my website, zibbyowens.com. Please check it out. And thanks again for checking out wefoundtime.com for this week's five new essays. You can follow me on Instagram at moms don't have time to read books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. Have a great week, everyone. Thank you.